It's, you know, Dante at the beginning of the Divine Comedy saying, in the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. That's when you know you've answered the call in the second half of life onto a courageous journey. You will feel utterly and completely lost. But like I said in my third TED Talk, you also discover that, that it's okay because lost is a place too. Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living Podcast, where we are reimagining and redefining what it means to be in midlife, where we are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host. Hey, did you notice we have a new intro? I'm so excited about it. And I'm so excited about where this podcast is heading. And I just want to take a hot minute to thank you guys for coming back week after week to listen. So today I'm talking to Paula Stone Williams. Paula is an internationally known speaker on gender equity, LGBTQ advocacy, and religious tolerance with a few TED Talks under her belt. She is also a pastor and pastoral counselor in Boulder County, Colorado, and as a transgender woman, Paula brings a unique perspective to her work on gender equity. We talk about what transitioning in midlife was like for her and the trials she faced on her journey to become her authentic self, and I think there's something in her story that we can all learn from that we are all called to become more true to ourselves as we age and that yes, it takes courage to leave behind what's comfortable, but it's oh so worthwhile to take that journey. I can't wait for you to meet her. Let's go. Paula, thank you so much for being here with me today. It's my pleasure. Happy to be with you. So for everybody listening, I found Paula through, uh, I was watching, you know how you watch those YouTube videos and all of a sudden there's a little suggestion over in the side box that says, oh, hey, you may want, want to check this out. Well, I watch a lot of TED Talks. So I was watching a TED Talk and one of yours popped up and I was like, I think I need to watch that. That looks really intriguing. Um, and it was uh, you talking about your experience as a, as a trans woman, um, having been a, a man in a man's world and now experiencing it as a female and how you are perceived and how that affects your life. And I was completely blown away by it. For, firstly, I just want you to know your sense of humor I love it. And, uh, and you had some really powerful, great points and things to say. And so I just welcome you. Thank you for being on with me. Thank you. Yeah, that first TED Talk has just taken on a life of its own. I, um, it's had over 4 million views. And I think almost all of them are just like yours that every now and again, the algorithms pick it up and all of a sudden it'll have 10,000 views a day. And then it'll settle back to about a thousand views a day, and then it'll jump back up to ten thousand views a day. Wow. And it's been doing that for three years now. So wow. the second one is on TED. It was done for TED itself, and that one I did with my son, and it's had you know not quite even half the views. So that first one has just kind of taken on a life of its own, just the whole experience of. The fact that life is easier for men, and I never knew that until I transitioned. So one of the reasons that I really wanted to speak to you on my podcast in particular is because I um, I talk about midlife reinvention, and you certainly have experienced a midlife reinvention um, because you transitioned uh, in your midlife, correct? I certainly did. In fact, many would say far beyond midlife when I finally transitioned. Yeah. yeah. I'd love to have you just kind of um, give us a little bit of your background uh, so we have a really good sense of what your life was before and what you were doing and, uh, and then how the transition, you know, what it was like to, to approach it, first of all. Uh, to even think about coming out. And I, I know you were married with children. 
uh, and, you know, I'd love to know what that experience was like for you. I imagine it was fraught. It certainly was and was the thing that held me off. My family's what held me off for a much longer period than I would have otherwise more than likely. I knew from the time I was three or four years of age that I was transgender. And in my naivete, I just thought I got to choose. I really thought that something I envisioned as a gender fairy would come along before kindergarten and say, okay, time to choose. And I would choose what I was, which was a girl. A lot of trans children are extremely distraught being in the gender that's identified in their birth certificate. I was not one of those kids. I didn't hate being a boy. I just knew I wasn't one. And growing up in a fundamentalist family as I did with a father who was a fundamentalist pastor, I understood quite quickly that this was not something I could seriously consider. Plus it was a time period in which no one knew anyone who was transgender. So I just buried it and lived life and went to seminary, got married, had kids, built a career and became quite successful in that world. I was the CEO of a large religious nonprofit that was Long Island based and national in its scope. And by the time I left, we were about 30 times larger than we had been when I first got there. I actually worked with them for 35 years. I've always been a little bit of a Renaissance person. So I was also uh, the president of a company that operated homes with mental retardation. I was a counselor. That is my, uh, my trade, actually. My doctorate is in pastoral counseling. I also was the editor-at-large of a national religious magazine. And I was on the regular preaching team of a couple of mega churches. Those are churches that are over 2,000 in weekend attendance. So I was doing all of those things and quite successful at it within my denomination of about 7,000 churches. I was one of our national leaders and I was comfortable. And, you know, there comes a point in life where I think a call comes into your life. And sometimes it's a call that comforts the afflicted. And sometimes it's a call that afflicts the comfortable. And in my case, it was definitely a call that afflicted the comfortable. I was earning a very good income for the industry that I was in. I was very much um, coasting and enjoying my various jobs, but I kept having a stronger and stronger sense that I was not living authentically. And then I actually was uh, watching my favorite television show of all time, Lost. And this was 10 years ago, 10 years ago this winter. And there comes a point in the final year where the protagonist of the show, Jack, if you were a Lost fan, realizes he's been called by the God figure to die. And it was a very, very powerful emotional experience for me. I ended up just sobbing and wept until, I don't know, midnight or so, fell asleep on the couch, woke up again at four and wept again till dawn because I knew this was not something I could any longer ignore. You know, the first half of life, I think we're busy building um, resume virtues. We're slaying dragons, amassing fortunes, building kingdoms. And there comes a point when that's not working for us anymore. And we start thinking more about eulogy virtues. We find we have fewer friends, but deeper friendships. We're no longer looking outside of ourselves for our sense of self-worth, but we look deep inside our own soul. We're no longer as nearly interested in being right as we are in being in relationship. And we get to that point where we realize if we've been called, we have no choice but to answer that call. I think of Odysseus after he gets back home to his beloved Penelope after being on his odyssey and then finds out he's called one last time and that he has to take an oar and go inland with it until he finally gets so far inland that people don't know what an oar is and then he is to bury it as a gift of God Poseidon and only then is he actually free to move on and he doesn't question that call because he knows it is a part of the journey and I think for me that's what happened in that second half of life moment there was just this realization that the call toward authenticity is sacred. 
and holy and for the greater good. So for me, that was the point at which I knew I needed to transition. My children were all grown out of the home. Uh, I was in a very good long-term marriage. My wife was a psychotherapist and she actually walked through this with me. She knew it from the time we married. And so as time progressed, she was with me every step of the way. And once I did let her know that I was starting to feel that I needed to transition, we went back into marriage therapy and our, our marriage therapist retired. He was amazing. And we happened to be his last clients on his last day. And so since we were both therapists, I just asked him, I said, Mike, how many couples are willing to work this hard? And he said, 1%. And I said, how many couples got this far? And again, without hesitation, he said, 1%. And then he said, which is what makes this so tragic because you're a lesbian and Kathy's not. And I think that was the point at which we knew that we would have to split up, but we're still in business together. Uh, we still are in practice together. We're still very close. Uh, but when I transitioned, that was the end of our marriage. Wow. Wow, wow. Uh, I can't, can't even imagine how hard that must have been. It was awful. And what struck me as you were telling the story, going back to the beginning, um, was that your, you said your wife was aware of what was going on for you from mm -hmm. the beginning. So you were, when you guys got married, um, this isn't something that you were keeping under wraps for yourself. It was something she knew about going in. She did not know about it going into the wedding. We were both fundamentalists and grew up in very, very much the fundamentalist bubble. So we were both pretty naive. And I had been convinced by a seminary professor that once I got married, this was going to go away. And so I didn't feel the need to tell her, but I knew within a week of getting married, it wasn't going away. So I told her very quickly then. Wow, wow, amazing. And you guys, how, how many kiddos, how many children do you have? We have three. Our son, Jonathan, is the pastor of a, a post-evangelical progressive church in Brooklyn, New York. It's a large congregation there that's about five years old. And uh, one of my daughters is here in the Denver area. She's a school administrator, and the other owns her own business here in the Denver area. Did you did you move out to Denver because your daughters were out there, or was that part of the transition with your job? I mean, we didn't even really get into that. Nope. Yeah, my wife had uh, taught school in New York forever, and she'd grown up in New York, had grown up on Long Island, and she was just kind of done with it. I had grown up in the Midwest, in Kentucky and Ohio. And she wanted to go someplace else for at least a short period of time. So she took a leave of absence from the Long Island school where she taught and uh, took a job out here teaching. And I was at that point uh, still CEO of the organization I directed, but we were all over the country at that point. Our main office was in Manhattan. Our back office was in Massachusetts. Our, International director was in San Francisco. Our CFO was in Philadelphia. So me being in Denver wasn't a problem. So we came out here, rented, and decided we wanted to move here. And so we built a house in Boulder County, close to Rocky Mountain National Park. And, uh, and then she left her job teaching and taught here for another five years. And then she went back to school to become a psychotherapist. So the girls actually came after the fact. My son had gone to college out here, but then he's the one who's not here because he married a girl from back east, and <laughs> I think they're in New York for good. Life's crazy that way, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, Well, I like it because it gets me back to Brooklyn, and I was in New York for 35 years. I miss the pace of the East Coast. I loved it. Yeah. So I'm back off and enough, and my book agent's there, my publishing houses there, my um, speakers agencies there, and a lot of my friends. So I get back often, just not since COVID. Wow. 
So going back, man, you, you, you lived this whole life uh, and knowing what was inside you and how you were feeling and your wife knowing, and you guys, you managed and you, and you had your kids and, and you lived your life. How, how was that for you? Well, it was a life of accommodation. It was a good life and it was an easy life in many ways. Pretty much everything I touched turned to gold. And I worked hard for everything that I got, but I also don't think I had a clue that I started way far away from the finish line or from the starting line, way closer to the finish line. So that life really was relatively easy for me. And so on one hand, you're accommodating others' needs and expectations. But then on the other hand, you have this knowing, this absolute knowing that is always there and you're not quite ever at peace. So for me, not only was it being trans, it also was the fact that I had a lot of power within a large evangelical denomination. But I think because of just my intellectual curiosity and my education and being transgender, my theology started moving away from that. Mm -hmm. much earlier in my life. And I stayed because I felt like I could change things from within and, and in fact did make a lot of changes from within. But I think I always was accommodating there too, a denomination that was actually a good bit more conservative than my heart. So for me, leaving my gender, of course I was fired from all my jobs within seven days. Um, that also took me out of that world which at the time was difficult because I probably knew, I don't know, thousand, six, seven thousand people by name. I had been in that denomination my entire life. I was the wow. fifth generation in that denomination. And post-transition, I've met exactly 20 of those people, six more than once. So for me, it was an absolute uh, separation, discontinuity mm. Mm. Uh, between the two halves of my life. True, in all 50 states, you can't fire someone for being transgender, but still to this day, you can fire them if they work for a religious corporation. And every one of my employers except one uh, was a religious corporation. And that one was a publishing house that had a religious publication. So while they couldn't fire me right away, they could pull me from that publication. And they were saddled with me for another eight months or so. But pretty much I lost all my jobs when I came out. Never had a bad review, um, never an issue of any kind whatsoever. I was gone purely because I was transgender. But for me, that did. Uh, finally, I was no longer living a life of accommodation on either count. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Did you, did you expect or did you suspect that you could be fired? for making the decision? I doubted that I would. I wasn't sure I was going to transition at the time I came out. I just began to realize that it was a definite possibility, maybe even a likelihood. And so I felt like, okay, it's time to let them know that this might be coming down the line. And so I had a two-year plan to step out. Uh, so I did not expect to be let go immediately. Wow. I mean, I, you know, when I took over the organization, our budget was $167,000. When I left, it was $4 million. You know, when I took it over, we oh only worked gosh. on Long Island and the outer boroughs of the city. When I left, we worked nationwide and in Western Europe. I mean, we were, wow. we became one of the two largest in the country at what we did. So we'd been wildly successful. And um, I, I did not think that it was going to happen like that. But I think when you are a well-educated, successful white male, you have no idea just how entitled you are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I look back now and I mean, naivete is not even an adequate word. It, it should be something even more, uh, more definitive. I, I was clueless that what was coming was in fact coming. Wow. I knew that my denomination would not be accepting once I, came out publicly. Mm -hmm. At that point, I was not intending to come out publicly. I was just coming out to the board. Gotcha. Okay. So this was an internal um, coming out a step Correct. in the process. Right. Wow. Right. Oh my goodness. Uh, so there you are. And 
you've just, I, I can't imagine how your heart must've been pounding to, to even come out to the board. And then where are you then that you, where your, your livelihood is now uh, gone? It was gone. I mean, I earned more in the last two months as Paula than I earned in the next 48 months as Paula. Wow. Oh my gosh. Because all of my credentialing was within the evangelical world. And so it was uh, very difficult for me to find work. The only work that I kept was a handful of my counseling clients. And I, my practice was already small at that point. And I actually kept all of my clients, but it was just a handful. So I went from a very, very comfortable lifestyle to virtually nothing. The good news was that there was a half million of my own dollars that I had loaned to the ministry that I worked with. And I knew I would be getting that back. Uh, the bad news was that after I came out, they decided they didn't have to give it back. And I had to actually threaten a lawsuit. Wow. And it took about uh, took about six months before I finally got it all, but finally did get all of that back. And that's oh. been what I lived on for the next four years. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That's disgusting. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have nothing else to say other than that's disgusting. Yeah, it's pretty awful. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty awful. I mean, it was um, a third of it was my own cash and two thirds of it was money that had been designated to my account. So it was restricted income only for my salary. So I actually had control of the whole half million. And uh, it was it was dicey. I, I wasn't sure I was going to get it. It uh, I just turned in the manuscript for my book um, just two days ago. And I've been heavy in it for about nine months. And just having to continue to go back and read through and live through that time period, it's painful and it's hard. Wow. Wow. So you, when you came out to the board, did your, um, did you, did your kid, have your kids always known? Have, did, did you? No, the kids never knew because I never thought I was going to transition. Right. So once I had that strong sense of call, um, you know, it's just so typical with the hero's journey. You know, the hero's journey is common in every culture, every language, every ethnicity, every people group. Mm -hmm. And it always has the same elements. And ordinary citizens called onto an extraordinary journey under the road of trials. And initially they reject the call because, hey, it's the road of trials. But then they're miserable because they know they've been called and the spiritual guide comes along and gives them the strength to answer the call. That was my experience. I knew I had been called watching the TV show Lost. And I rejected the call for the next two years. And actually, I think it was Kathy who was the spiritual guide who finally said, you know, you're just getting worse and worse, more and more depressed. I think you need to do something. And my therapist thought that maybe a, a, a low dose of estrogen and a higher dose of anti-androgens might just settle my brain down. Uh, one of the things we know about gender dysphoria is that it likely is something that occurs in the second trimester of pregnancy so that the brain never does really make a connection to the body that's developed. Hmm. And so there's a subset of people that just bringing estrogen into the body and taking away testosterone causes them to be able to continue to live as a male. I was hoping that would be the case. Uh, the problem was within three months of starting on a very low dose of estrogen, I went back to the doctor and she was shocked. She said, your body's changing like I would expect the body of a 13 year old to change. And she said, it's clear your body's been craving this stuff. You can't be on a low dose. Your body's gonna change so much that within a year people are going to think you're deathly ill, or they're going to know that you're transitioning genders. So you, you're not going to be able to get by under the radar wow. just with a low dose of hormones. So that was the point at which I, I had to decide. And I tried going off for a very short period of time, less than a month, and I couldn't do it. And that's when Kathy and I said, we got to tell the kids. So 
that was a pretty traumatic experience. It was actually about uh, exactly a year before I came out at work and a year and a half before it was out in the general world that I was trans. Wow. How old were you at this point, Paula? Oh, we're not talking about that. Um, <laughs> I, that was That's okay. eight, eight years ago. <laughs> like, I'll tell you that. Midlife. So it was eight years ago, seven years ago that I lost my job. Yeah. And, uh, and then six and a half years ago that I transitioned. Wow. I'm older than dirt. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> No, you're not. You look amazing. Um, wow. So here you are. D d I just, the courage that, that you have is uh, kind of mind blowing to me. I mean, before I get to what I'm thinking about is, is all the speaking that you're doing uh, and uh, the Ted talks and writing a book and, uh, and uh, and you're now a pastor of a church, correct? You you That's turned correct. that around some way somehow. Um, let's let's go into that. Like so so you came you, you came out to the board. You came out to your kids. How did they take it? Let's actually let's step back one bit further. How how did the kids do with that? The girls were really wonderful, and were a strong support for me over the next year. Jonathan pretty much disappeared pretty quickly. Uh, we were very, very close and he felt betrayed. And it was, uh, he's written about it in a very good book, uh, She's My Dad. And it's funny because a lot of people feel like he was too tough on me in the book. I don't. Uh, you know, you, you explode the family narrative when you transition genders. Families are gendered entities. Mm -hmm. And no one is more disturbed than uh, a son if you're transitioning from male to female. So it was tough. He pretty much disappeared for about a year. And then he was back. And then each of the girls in their own turn kind of took a period of time away. But the time Jonathan came back is when Jaina, my youngest, left for a year. She was going through a divorce at the time. And, um, and then my middle daughter was only about a year ago that we, we had done Jada Pinkett Smith's television show, uh, uh, Red Table Talk. The Red Table, uh-huh. And, um, or Red Table. And um, Jonathan and I were initially going to do it because we'd done a lot together since we had done the Ted Wyndham event together. And they came out here to shoot B-roll and decided to invite both of the girls. And JL at that point, uh, did not want to participate. That was the point at which she kind of pulled away. And I, I respected that. I think each one of them needed to go through their period of grieving. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we're a strong family. I mean, we're all very strong now and we're all back together. But it was, uh, it was tough. I remember at the time thinking, oh, you know, it might take a year or two. And then after Jonathan kind of took his leave, I thought, well, it might take five years. It's, it'll take 10. It'll be 10, I think, before we really completely have a new normal that does not have uh, so much pain involved in it. Yeah. Long process, huh? Yep. Do you, so you, you, you felt this call all of a sudden watching Lost of all things, right? And I have to, I have to, I, I personally have to wonder if, if you were more open to the call because, because you were in your midlife, because I, I, I think I mentioned to you earlier that I, I feel like, you know, midlife inherently has us all questioning our paths and, um, and our positions in the world and what we have to contribute and who we are and what we thought we were, but what, where are we going? Um, and I wonder how much of your ability to step into the change and your, your courage came from being in midlife and, and, and having such a body of life experience behind you that you knew you had the resilience to do this. I'm guessing. <laughs> you know, I think... I think I, I believe that 
everyone is called onto the hero's journey. The question isn't whether you're called or not, the question is whether you answer the call. And I think that we tend to overestimate the work that we're going to do in the first two decades of our adult lives. And I think we underestimate that our most productive years are actually, uh, particularly in today's world, often between 50 and 80. Mm. You know, you think about, we'll be inaugurating a new president who's just turned 78. Uh, that's not unusual in today's world. And I, I know there were times I felt called before, but I was comfortable. And there came that moment where the call was so strong that I was miserable in having rejected it. And you answer the call and sure enough, you're under the road of trials. And then it gets worse, which is always true with a hero's journey. You, it's, you know, Dante at the beginning of the divine comedy saying, in the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. That's when you know you've answered the call in the second half of life onto a courageous journey. You will feel utterly and completely lost. But like I said in my third TED talk, you also discover that, that it's okay because lost is a place too. And it's fine to have to spend time in a place called lost, because when you come into it, halfway through your life, you come in with greater resources, you come in with much more wisdom, you come in with one or two failures under your belt, and you know that failure is not the all that, that ends all. You know, a number of years ago, I, I memorized Rilke's poem, The Man Watching, and the, the very last lines of it are, winning does not tempt that man, this is how he grows by being defeated decisively by greater beings. Mm. You know, by the time you get to midlife, you understand the truth of that. Oh yeah. <laughs> that we learn more through our failures than we do through our successes. So I think you have more of the resources. And I think it's why when people don't answer the call in midlife, it's why you see them begin to just shut down. You know, it's, it's as if half of them knows that they need to do more with their lives but the other half just wants to stay safe and comfortable. And it gets to the point that these two halves of yourself are fighting. And the one half says, well, fine, I'm not even gonna get out of bed in the morning then if you're just gonna go keep doing the same thing you've always done. And so the half that gets up and goes to work comes back to bed at night and the half that's all mad, the half that actually wants to answer the call says, so how was it? And the one half says, well, I'm, I'm safe, but it was pretty boring. And, you know, I think most people live those lives of quiet desperation. They never find the courage to answer that call and they stay safe and then they die. And you may as well put on their epitaph, um, uh, safe at last, because it, it's like, what, what, what were you waiting for? Life is dangerous by its very nature. You know, it, it's, Carl Jung called it a short pause between two great mysteries. And it's amazing to me how few of us show up for that short pause. You know, we are, some mm -hmm. people I think we're so wounded early in life that we really must have safety. And I have a lot of respect for those people who choose to live a more traditional life because they don't have the strength to do otherwise. But I think most of us knew when we were little tiny things that the loving people putting us to bed didn't really know who we were, mm. that we were the only ones who knew what, who we were. And then we grow up and we wanna to try to please those people. Mm -hmm. And you finally get to the point where you either have pleased them or you've realized they're never going to be pleased. And you ask yourself, well, what am I here for? For what purpose? To what end am I here? And I think that is when we have to answer that call uh, onto the hero's journey. Yeah. That's, when I was, uh, took me about two years to get up the courage and the gumption to start my podcast. Um, and uh, a lot of it was just fear. You know, I, I was telling, mm -hmm. a lot of it was that I was telling myself I didn't have time to do it because I have another business that I'm running and kids and life and busy, 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 you know? Um, 
And as I was uh, trying to pick the name of the podcast and all the stuff that, you know, when I was like, okay, what would I, one of the taglines I thought I would put under it or a subtitle was, we're not dead yet. We're not dead yet. What are we doing? Like, exactly. I, I think that um, the way we've set things up kind of just assumes that you, you get to this age and all right, you've done your part now, you know, maybe we expect to be able to retire and relax or, um, you know, we've earned our keep or, uh, you know, we were promised a certain something, but I mean, for me, I just feel like, gosh, you know, I could have another 80 years, not another 30 years, maybe ahead of me that could be productive. And how awesome would that be? Exactly. My father passed away six months ago at 96. My mother six months before that at 94. Wow. And so, you know, there's uh, one of my good friends was the national president of PFLAG and stepped down from that role at 85. And so when we had lunch shortly after she stepped down, she said, yeah, I'm trying to figure out what the big challenge is for the next 10 years. Bless her. That's how to live. There you go. You know, she's, <laughs> she's going to be focusing primarily and is uh, on racial reconciliation, systemic racism. And she said, yeah, I think that's the next chapter. Even there, she doesn't say it's the last chapter. Right. Right. My, one of my mentors was the rector of the Long Island of the Roman Catholic Seminary in Long Island, back at a conception seminary for a long time. And, um, you know, he was still my mentor at 96. I mean, he died at 99 and was very vibrant, led a study group that I was in for 25 years. My other mentor, same thing, was a philosophy professor at Fairleigh Dickinson in New Jersey head of the philosophy department there. And he was very, very active right up in, until the end. I think the kind of work you do might shift. Mm -hmm. uh, I think early on, we're just trying to, to get to the Holy Grail, to find the prize, great price. And as you get older, you begin to realize that that actually isn't the end of the hero's journey. Once you get the Holy Grail, your responsibility is to bring it back and give it as an offering to those from whom you have departed. And that I think is what we're thinking in the second half of life. It's that maybe we've already grabbed the brass ring, but now the question is, what is our responsibility with it? You know, I knew being very, very well known in the evangelical world. I mean, I've preached at some point or another in three of the 10 largest churches in the United States. And I knew that embedded in my identity were responsibilities. I knew I couldn't transition and go quietly into the night that I, I would have to speak up. I'm probably, probably the best known evangelical to transition in the country. And, um, you know, I, I knew that that then would be my responsibility, taking what I was learning and bringing it back and giving it as an offering. And in my case, I had no idea that the main offering I would be giving would be about gender equity. Right. That is something I just stumbled across. And the first TED talk then uh, created opportunities. And you know, just in the last two months, I've spoken to 10 uh, corporations or conferences all over the world on gender equity. Wow. Uh, I think one of the 10, I was speaking on LGBTQ issues. Uh, the other nine, I was just speaking on the differences between experiencing life as a male and as a female. Wow. So you, so here you are, let's go backwards and then, and then come forwards to your Ted talks. Um, you, you came out to your board, you suddenly are without a job and you're on the journey and how, like, how long before you feel like you landed on your feet a little bit? I think the six months, the first six months until the money finally arrived, they were the dark night of the soul that uh, living in the place called Lost. Mm -hmm. I discovered PFLAG at the end of that time period. And because our local Boulder County chapter, because their president was the national president, I was very quickly introduced to people at the national level of PFLAG. 
and started doing more work there. Then I'm blessed that in the Denver area, there are a number of progressive post-evangelical churches. And what most people don't realize is within Christianity in the United States, you basically have two very different camps, um, Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. And then if you just look at Protestantism, you have two very different camps. You have mainline Protestantism, which would be the Presbyterian church, the Lutheran church, the Methodist church, Episcopal church, and almost all of those denominations are dying. Their churches are small, their people are all over 70. Uh, they are about the only kind of churches that exist in the part of the country where you live. Mm -hmm. But in the rest of the country, that's not the case. The churches that are growing and large are evangelical churches, which are more conservative. So if you look at the 100 largest churches in the United States, uh, all but one of them are evangelical churches. These churches have contemporary music. They're very vibrant. It's not uncommon for them to have 10, 20,000 people on a Sunday morning. And that was the world that I inhabited. But that world is 100% non-accepting of LGBTQ plus people. Mm -hmm. They don't want to admit that because they know they've lost the culture wars on that one, but they are not at all accepting. So what I was looking for was something that pretty much didn't exist. Mainline churches weren't interested in me because I'd come from an evangelical background. So even though my theology mm -hmm. matched mainline Protestant churches, mm -hmm. my background did not. Hmm. But what happened was that there, there a new movement began that um, actually a Roman Catholic theologian, Richard Rohr, and then another oh, yeah. um, Protestant theologian, uh, um, kind of joined together and, and created this new post-evangelical world. And there were two large post-evangelical churches in Denver. Hmm. I started preaching at one of them and the other one to become an open and affirming church and actually was preaching there when NPR heard me. Someone from NPR heard me, booked me for their show. And then that show was when the TED people heard me. So those two churches helped me. And then actually those two churches and my son's church, which is also progressive post-evangelical, uh, those three churches joined together to start the church that I pastored in Boulder County, Colorado. It's called Left Hand Church after the canyon and the creek that are prominent in our county uh, and the brewery. <laughs> but uh, Left Hand Church is three years old. There are four of us who uh, serve as co-pastors. We're all bivocational. Uh, we have a pretty large online presence, and a lot of that's because of my my TED Talks. Last Sunday, we had live viewers from Australia, New Zealand, the Philippines, Canada, Mexico, Brazil, England, Ireland. You know, we've got a pretty sizable audience of well over a thousand every week. Uh, but it's a, it's a growing part of the Christian world uh, with very contemporary music, a very uh, entertaining, if you will, worship style, but a more open theology. Yeah, I find that to be very um, hopeful. Um, it is very hopeful. There's a, um, you know, we're spiritual beings by nature. What brought us together, in fact, beyond the level of blood kin, was not the need for safety. What turned us from a blood kin-centered species to a tribal species, which we are one of only nine tribal species, but what made that shift was our search for meaning. It was our search for meaning as a species that brought us together beyond the level of blood kin. And if you look at how we progressed as a species, we took off once we started functioning at a level that was beyond blood kin. So it was really that spiritual nature, that search for meaning that brought us together. And I believe it still drives us. So I happen to be a Christian. That's the tradition that I grew up in. And we happen to be a Christian church, but our membership comes from all kinds of different backgrounds. A lot of our people wouldn't consider themselves to necessarily be Christian, but we are all 
uh, together, recognizing the bigger themes in life that we're all trying to figure out the meaning of life together. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, I I, uh, was born and raised Catholic. um, And uh, in in my 20s, uh, walked away from the church for a bit, um, primarily because I had many friends who were gay. And I felt like I just couldn't understand why my church wouldn't accept that. And right. Yes. 71% of Catholics are actually supportive of marriage equality. Yeah. Um, And actually a very large group of priests in the United States are supported, particularly in the Northeast where you are. Uh, The problem is the bishops are not. Right. Uh, A lot of the bishops were appointed bishops by John Paul, who was a decidedly conservative Pope. And of course we see that shifting now with Francis. Yeah. I do find that to be very hopeful. Um, yep. You know, decided to raise my kids in the church uh, just so that they'd have some connection to something larger yeah. than themselves. Uh, and again, like you said, trying to affect change from within somehow. Not, right. not that as Catholics, we as lay people have a lot of power in that uh, regard. But, um, you know. Well, my, my study group, my main spiritual group for 25 years was a Catholic group. I was the only Protestant in the group. So I have a lot of respect for the Catholic Church, particularly uh, for the Franciscans. I've been fortunate to spend some personal time with Richard Rohr, just in a small group of about 20 of us, uh, who is a Franciscan, who's uh, in many ways, I think, shaped my theology more than anyone else. Hmm. Wow. I find it so interesting that you've got um, people that uh, are attending your your church that don't identify as Christian. I think that's fascinating yeah my son's church would would be the same in fact i think half of broadway goes to his church their music is <laughs> unbelievable uh his his worship pastor used to play fontaine on les miserables oh my um, goodness what's the name of the church yeah, where he's at what, what's it's the... a forefront church in brooklyn in downtown okay. brooklyn okay forefront f-o-r-e-f-r-o-n-t forefront yeah. church there's also the um, actors so church yeah new york city i think yeah uh, there where is. is that again yeah, on you know the... where that is yeah uh, I don't know. I want to say it's on the Upper West Side. Uh, the West, Midtown well, yeah, the West Side. West, uh, it's, yeah, Midtown West Side. I want Midtown to say West 30s, Side, I think. But, yeah, that yeah. seems about right to me. Oh, my goodness. So you, you came out to the board, but without necessarily planning to transition? Or, or were you planning? You, right. And at at some point with, with the hormones, you realized that it was, it was do or don't, and you decided right. to do it. And you, at what point did you, or did you always know that you were going to speak up, that you were going to be a voice and, 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 and use your voice? Well, I think I always knew that I was going to um, make a shift and speak up on religious issues mm-hmm. and was because I was CEO of the organization and it was very large. I just didn't want to kill it in the process. I wanted to wait until we were strong enough to be able to withstand the loss of income from our conservative supporters, mm-hmm. which I believe was a mistake, by the way. Um, the transitioning part, I don't know that I realized how big a deal it was going to be that someone of my stature, if you will, was transitioning. So it was pretty impossible. I mean, I came out on on my blog and there were 65,000 page views just like that. And so, and most of those people were pissed, you know, they Mm -hmm. they were not very happy. So I think I knew then that um, like I said, embedded in my identity were responsibilities. And so I would be speaking up for the LGBTQ plus population and doing whatever I could to change attitudes about uh, those issues in the evangelical community. And PFLAG then afforded me a, a national opportunity to do that. I also became a part of an organization called the Center for Progressive Renewal, which was an attempt by five mainline Protestant denominations to reach out to uh, evangelicals 
and that also gave me a sizable platform, but neither of those gave me nearly the kind of platform that uh, Ted has. Wow. And so at some point along your journey, you discovered what it is to um, the gender inequalities uh, that oh you're my goodness, yeah. on. And at what point did you decide that you needed to, that that TED talk, when, how did that come about? Like, what did you? Yeah, I, you know, I actually was talking to uh, one of my friends is the head of coaching for TED, Briar Goldberg. And Briar had been, a, is also a coach for TEDx Mile High. And Helena Bowen is a curator for TEDx Mile High and a coach for TED. And Helena was the one who'd heard me on NPR. And she, um, they decided to book me not knowing what I was going to speak on. So we went back and forth and back and forth and finally decided on the gender equity issues because I was just getting so annoyed by it. And within months of doing that talk, well, I knew that day that, I mean, I could just see from the women's response that day that I'd hit a, a chord. Oh, yes. And within three months, I'd heard from women on all seven continents, including Antarctica. And so I knew then that I was on to something. And then the, the living it is just a constant, constant presence. I was with uh, one of my closest friends. I was staying at her house last week. And I, um, I was getting dressed in the morning and I, I tucked in a shirt and she looked at me and she said, should you really be tucking in that shirt? And I said to her, I said, that is a phrase a man never hears. No one has ever said to a man, should you really tuck in that shirt? There are plenty of times we should be saying to men, should you really tuck in that shirt? But no one's going to say it. You know, and also she said to me at one point, this I this fall she said is that really a good haircut for somebody over 50 i said you know that's another phrase you never hear spoken to a man you never hear someone say to a man is that really a good haircut for a man over 50 because the truth is the world doesn't care if a man looks like he's over 50 or 60 or 70. Mm -hmm. a woman it's a different story mm -hmm. you know it's an ongoing daily issue i was in a meeting not long ago for a nonprofit i'm on the board of and we have a new CEO and we're talking about having her do a keynote uh, so we could have our people get to know her. And I said, you know, she's not a seasoned speaker. You know, I, maybe it would be better if I interviewed her instead. And, but if you wanted to speak, I'll be happy to coach her. At which point a very powerful uh, white man on the board, a New York City resident said, well, if we're gonna do that, why don't we hire a real coach? <gasps> <laughs> and I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I have done four TED Talks. I've been a TED Speakers ambassador. I have coached TEDx speakers. I'm a curator for TEDx. I have taught speech in three universities, two in the United States, one in Europe. What part of that makes me not a real coach? <laughs> but I didn't speak up for myself because if you speak up for yourself as a woman, there's a word for that. Uh-huh. And I think the most disturbing reality to me of transitioning genders is how much women do not stand up for one another. Women do not empower one another. I Men think do. We're learning. Men empower one another. Yes. Men go and into a room, they identify who the alpha is in the room, they they rank themselves according to the alpha, and then they set about accomplishing the purposes of the alpha. Men routinely empower one another. Women see each other as competition. Yes. And I understand why, but it's not really ever going to help getting us in the direction of gender equity. So, you know, I waited for one of the women in the room to say, um, you know, actually, she knows her stuff. She's actually literally written a book on this subject. But no, nobody did because women don't stand up for each other. Hmm. That's disappointing. I, I like to think, and I and I see more and more that I think women are, are are starting to to realize that we we need to step up and we need to support each other. Um, I tell you, I growing up, uh, 
I think it was about the ninth grade. I was, I was, uh, I had a group of friends. I was new to, to a school. I moved from one part of town to another. And so I was new and, uh, found a, a group of friends and, uh, there's a lot of back stabby kind of conversations going on. And uh, I, you know, whoever wasn't there that day was somehow the topic of conversation, <laughs> you know, it was, and I, I decided then and there that I, I couldn't hang out in groups of women or girls. And for a long time, yep. it hindered my ability to, to make friends with women, like other than a one-on-one, like I had a lot of very close one-on-one relationships, but anything in a group, I, I, I avoided for a very long time. And I actually found it much easier to make friends with men for a long time. Yep. Um, but I, yep. but that's changing. I think it's now. true. That's changing now, and maybe it's just because it's, I've decided it needs to. But um. <laughs> you know, if it is, then it it must have been really bad before, because um, you know I've actually had more conflict with women in six years as a woman than I had with women in you know five decades as a really? man. Really, really. Yeah. I never had conflict with women and really rarely had conflict with anyone. And I've had uh, significant conflict with two co-workers as a woman, both of whom were good friends as well. Interesting. Very interesting. In one case, lost the friendship. Oh, I'm sorry. The world is far kinder to an alpha male than it is to an alpha female. That is incredibly true. <laughs> That is, that is, you know, and yet you look at alpha females, you know, I mean, take a look at the six countries that have dealt the best with COVID-19, at least with the Mm -hmm. first wave, Finland, Norway, Germany, Iceland, uh, Taiwan, and New Zealand. Zealand. And what do they all have in common? A female head of state. Mm -hmm. And every one of them an alpha female. Mm -hmm. Alpha females, I'm convinced, are often the best leaders on earth at a corporate level, any other level. And yet only 5.8% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women, only 6.6% of Silicon Valley CEOs, only 22% of Fortune 500 uh, senior vice presidents are women, 2% of movie directors, 11% are writers, and 19% are producers. Only 3% of venture capital goes to female-founded firms. So I mean, I understand where it comes from, Women get paid 79 cents in the dollar of what men get paid. Black women, 64 cents in the dollar. Native American women, 59 cents in the dollar. Hispanic American women, 54 cents in the dollar. So I understand that sense of competition. Hey, I had to work hard to get to this C-suite position. Why should I let you? Um, but of course, you know, we're not ever going to get to gender equity until women start empowering each other. Absolutely. And hopefully it is getting better. I sure hope so. There's a terrific documentary uh, you might want to check out if you, if you can. I, I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere at this point. A friend of mine uh, was a story producer on it. Uh, it was uh, called This Changes Everything. Uh, it was executive producer was Gina Davis. Um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with her project, of which I cannot think of the name of it right now, but she... Yeah, I can't think of the name of it either, but I am... A, you're yeah. familiar with it? She started realizing yes. that mm-hmm. there were not enough, you know, even on Sesame Street that there, you know, she, it was because she had kids. And all of a sudden she was looking at literature and movies and and kids shows and everything. And there were no female uh, leads. There were no female characters. There was no strong, and there's certainly right. not an equity. And she, so she was like, am I imagining this or is this real? And then she put in the money to start getting the, the, or raising the money to get the uh, research done on it. And it really came to show that, yeah, you, the, the numbers don't lie. This is what's happening. And um, no. they interviewed people in this movie and, and, and it was incredible because the men were not doing this on purpose it's that they were hiring their friends. Mm. It's that you hire who you like. It, you hire right. the person who's like you. And unless you can s- very, very conscientiously step outside that to hire diversely, yeah. you're not going to. It has to be a decision that you look at and make. I think one of the worst statistics is that mothers with children at home are 44% less likely to be hired for a job. 
Even though mothers with children at home are proven to be the world's best multitaskers, extremely efficient with their use of time, are always thinking ROI and take fewer unnecessary risks. Hmm. They're more productive and yet they're 44% less likely to be hired for a job. And that doesn't matter whether they're being hired by a man or a woman making that decision. Yeah. That's just wrong. Yeah. And of course, and I, a lot of it's on COVID, us to they're talk the ones up. giving up their jobs. Yeah. A lot of it's on us so, to speak up and a lot of it's on us to to like you said, bring the other women up with us. It's it's like yeah. we we got to lift each other up, you know. And for and, me, I will tell you I'm not I'm not anti-man at all. I love men. Um, and, uh, you know, I just think we all, we can all exist here together in this world. There's enough for everybody. Yeah. <sighs> I love empowering women, just helping them to see what they're capable of doing. There are a few things that, that are so satisfying to me because I see all these women who are every bit as amazing as any of the guys I used to work with. And yet they just don't have that same level of confidence. And it's because we teach our, our sons to be confident. We teach our daughters they have to be perfect. And it doesn't work to their benefit. You know, they get out into the real world and they do well in school, but they get into the real world and there's a job that opens up at their company and it has five requirements. And a woman has four of the five and she thinks, well, I can't apply for that position because I'm not perfect. I don't have the fifth. Right. A guy has two of the five and he thinks, yeah, I got this. And he applies for the job and gets the job that she didn't even apply for, even though he's half as qualified for it. Right. You and know, that's, that's just... Yeah, I've, I've heard that statistic before and it's mind boggling how we, and this yeah. is where I'm, my brain has gone back to your TED talk. You mentioned, um, you know, the, the, the mansplaining and the, and the questioning of your, right. of your yeah. intelligence and how after a while, when your intelligence is questioned enough that you start to question your own intelligence and your own uh, ability to, to do this. Exactly. I you, you, you were raised with this and clearly an alpha male and, and, uh, uh, in, you know, in, in your own way. And here you are now you're living as a woman. Do you feel like the cultural, um, the cultural, part of you that, that, that was, you know, raised as a man, does that trail with you into your experience as a woman now? Or how does that all fit in for you now? Yeah, absolutely. There's no question. I, I will not live long enough to lose my male entitlement. You know, I brought it with me when mm -hmm. I transitioned. You don't have that many decades of having the world tailored to you without bringing the benefit of that with you. Mm -hmm. Um, the problem is that it's not received the same. Mm. So if you show ambition as a white male, it's a given mm -hmm. that you do that. If you show ambition as a woman, um, women particularly are likely to judge you for it. Mm -hmm. So I brought it with me, but... You know, I think it's been interesting for me. I'm extremely fortunate in that I'm not recognized as transgender, even though I'm quite tall. Um, no one seems to ever be aware that I'm trans. It's even harder for those who, who it's obvious they're transgender. There's a lot of prejudice against mm -hmm. them. I don't experience that. I just get the garden variety prejudice that women get, that white women get. Wow. And wow, wow. That enough is enough to cause you to lose confidence in yourself, to cause you to not speak up, mm -hmm. to, I'm like I said, a Renaissance person. I'm qualified in a number of areas, but women aren't allowed to be. It's assumed a woman can only have one area of expertise. And so you tend not to credential yourself when you know you actually know more than anybody else in the room. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's hard, wow. it's hard. So crazy. You know, my most common, I think the one area that that is the most, uh, is the easiest experience to, to analyze the differences is flying because that's not gender specific. I'm a two and a half million mile fl uh, frequent flyer with American Airlines. I'm at their top level, have always been. And, 
you know, that's not gendered. That's just what it is. Mm -hmm. But the way I'm treated is totally different. So not long ago, I was flying from uh, right before COVID from Tucson to Phoenix and they downsized the equipment from a CRJ 700 to a 200. And a 200 is actually a crown, clown car masquerading as an airliner. I hate them. <laughs> and so they call me up to the counter and, and the guy said, I put you in row eight, the exit row. And I said, oh, thanks. But on a 200, the exit row actually has no more room than the other rows. One A or F are actually the only decent seats such as they are. And with great condescension, he's like, well, ma'am, I can't put you in the first row, but the exit row is the exit row and it has far more room. And I said, yeah, you know, just no, I want one IRF. I didn't speak up for myself because it's not worth it. But I can tell you what would have happened when I was a guy. The guy would have said, really? Row eight, the, the exit row in a 200 doesn't have more room? I said, oh, no, no, not even, a, not even a full inch more than the other rows. And the guy would have said, I didn't know that. Good to know you frequent flyers know everything because we frequent flyers know everything. <laughs> but I'm allowed to know everything as a man, but no, 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 not as a woman. <laughs> oh my, how amazing that you've had this experience from both sides of the coin. Yeah. Amazing. And are yeah. using your voice to, to speak up about it. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. I am looking at the time, Paula, and oh my gosh, I could talk to you all day, but I want to respect your time. I know you have something to go to after this. Um, real quick, when does your book come out? Uh, the book comes out in June. It's called As a Woman. Is there anything else that you're excited about? What, how can people find you? Yeah, I have a blog, uh, which I used to be weekly. I was, I was working on the book. It was more like every other week, but paulastonewilliams.com. Um, that is a good place to find me. And um, they are making a movie about my life in Hollywood. Uh, they're actually looking for a director right now. That'll be out in about another year. So, wow. Yeah. A lot cooking. I, 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 I'm just so thankful that, that you joined me today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being with you. Well, there you have it. Just wow. I, I find myself so inspired by Paula's courage, and I sure hope you were able to see yourself in her story. Um, if you want to know more about Paula, I will have that information for you in the show notes, including the links to her TED Talks. You can just go to latebloomerliving.com forward slash podcast and click on the show notes for episode 34. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon.